Revelation chapter 20 uh, is, is where we're at. Revelation chapter 20. So you've had two weeks to get all the answers figured out. Looking forward to getting those from you. Well, well, I've been traveling. You've got it all sorted out, which is excellent. Excited about that. (laughs) Um, What I'll do is I'll read the first 10 verses and then we will go ahead and do a little bit of some recapping through those first six verses. And as we go through those first six verses, if you have questions about what we've uh, covered so far, there'll be an opportunity to go back over that. But uh, from what I could uh, determine from two weeks ago, your questions were all in seven through ten and we never got there. So that was uh, where we will end up uh, today. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had deceived them, was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. No problem. When you read that, you see where all the movies and all the the hysterical books and things like that ultimately come from. Awful lot of stuff that's said in those uh, first 10 verses. So uh, let's do some recapping from where we left off two weeks ago. And then if you have questions as we move through the recap part, this will be your chance to uh, to put those questions out there. Uh, so you notice that you begin in those first two verses with a picture of the dragon and you're, you're reminded in verse two who he is. We saw him in chapter 12. He's restated here in verse two of chapter 20. The ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan, all one and the same. He is bound for a thousand years, sealed in this abyss. He's sealed in the pit. And the purpose is that he will not be able to deceive the nations uh, any longer. And so we spent the, really the vast majority of that class two weeks ago talking about uh, how was Revelation depicting uh, how Satan or the dragon was deceiving the nations. And the conclusion that I gave to you is what you see throughout this book is a picture of Satan using a world empire, national power, and that it becomes so powerful that it compels people to not only worship it, 
uh, or they will be killed, but also then to persecute uh, the people of God. And then verse three had this strange little ending that I said you can't doesn't explain till verses seven through ten, which is then he will be released uh, for a little while. So first wave. Any questions about what we're looking at here, Debbie? Okay, well, let's talk about that. If you're going there, then I'll, let's go there. That's, that'll be my next part of the recap. So anything here with deceiving the nations, what that means, and then we'll talk about the thousand years and, re- and cover that again. But feel good about that. It's the only thing you see Satan doing. If, you, if you're wanting to go back and look at that, look at chapter 12. Chapter 12 has all the details there of attempting to gain victory over God and his people by first destroying the child, which is the Messiah, the Christ, he fails. And so all that he's pictured at the end of Revelation 12 to be able to do is to make war on the people of God. And then the very next scene that you have at the end of chapter 12, beginning of chapter 13, is this beast that rises up. And he's using that beast to try to harm the people of God. So when we come here to no longer deceiving the nations, then we must be talking about no longer using a world power in a way to be able to persecute God's people. All right. So Debbie's question, the thousand years, that's the other big one that comes up. Uh, And we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, symbolic for a large number. Or else, if you don't take the thousand years symbolically and you take it as an actual 1,000 years, then by consistency, you must then take the rest of this chapter literally as well. You can't have your cake and eat it too and say, I want a symbolic dragon, but an actual 1,000 years all in the same sentence. It's either all symbolic or it's all literal. So uh, this is why, as I had reminded us from last time, there's a reason why most theologians are now moving away from a literal 1,000 years Finally, the premillennial point of view is on the decline, which is great. I don't know what that means, what's going to be the new choice of flavor. <laughs> It'll probably take a, a, another war to fire up, and then it, premillennialism will be back because it's so intricately tied to, to that idea. So that that's uh, basically the idea here is it represents a significant duration of time. Uh, in verses 4 through 6, you're getting a picture about what's what's going on with this thousand years is that it's just representing the duration of, of Christ's reign. And you and you see that there in verse four saw thrones and those seated on the authority to judge and was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received the mark on its forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And so we made this important point about the thousand year reign. The the scriptures are very clear about the timing of Christ's reign. Very clear that when Jesus rose from the dead, this, this is Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Jesus rose from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of God and has taken his place and has begun to rule and put all enemies under his feet. And uh, that is just all over the scriptures, Daniel chapter 7, as well as the New Testament. And you could go to 1 Corinthians 15, where we're told that Christ will continue to reign 
until all the enemies are ultimately destroyed and the final enemy uh, is death. And so uh, this is, I think, a very important conclusion is that therefore we presently live in this symbolic 1,000 year uh, reign of Christ. He's on the throne now. He will continue to reign until all the enemies are, are put under his feet. Any other interpretation means Christ is not on the throne now, which is problematic to all of New Testament scriptures that says he is reigning now. And tied to his reigning is the forgiveness of sins and the inclusion of the nations and the Gentiles. It is all bound together in one big idea to not have Christ reign now means there's no salvation to Gentiles. We're still under the old covenant. All those things are all are all tied tied together. Kathy, just in there. Yeah, and that's what seems to be pictured, right? Is those who die for the cause of Christ are with him and uh, reigning. Let me uh, pull pull that up here with this section as, as well. So you'll notice you have this curious statement that's made in verse 5. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. All right, so here's how I look at this. So the rest of the dead didn't come to life till the rest of the thousand years are ended. I, I think this is the idea is that here the faithful who die faithful are pictured as reigning with Christ now. And those who are unfaithful are just waiting for judgment. That would be how I would understand what verse 5 is, is getting at. Some will take this to say, so those who die during the Roman persecution have the advantage and they are reigning with Christ now. That's the first resurrection. And everybody else is just awaiting the second res- resurrection. And I don't know that that's the intent of this. I think it's more distinguishing the big idea of those who are faithful to God are pictured as reigning with him. And the New Testament confirms that. You remember the Apostle Paul talks about you know, his conundrum of if, he lives, that's for Christ, but to die is to be with the Lord, not to just kind of be in some waiting for final judgment. Uh, when Jesus told his story about the rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus is pictured in the bosom of Abraham and the comfort of God, essentially. Uh, Jesus calls it paradise when he's on the cross. So I think it's hard to say here that only those who died in the first or second or third century under Roman persecution are in view here. I I would look at this as saying faithful of God are with God when they die. The unfaithful, they're not. (laughs) They're waiting, awaiting this this final judgment. So I think that goes to your question. Do Do you want to follow with that? Or any questions along with that, Debbie? I would agree. I think anybody who is who has died faithful to God is pictured. I thought it had to be, yeah. What I was wondering about was whether or not it had to be somebody who had actually died for the cause of Christ, whereas everybody else, even though they're a Christian, wouldn't be included in 
Yeah, and I think it would include Christ, all Christians regardless of, of method of death, but faithful to God. Uh, and one of the reasons why would be Revelation chapter 7. You might remember that you had a counting of those who belong to God. And remember, you have this big number, 144,000. It's 12,000 of every tribe. And the whole idea is everyone who belongs to God is in the count. They're, they're the great multitude who are standing before the throne of God. And so I, I can't see a way to make other Christians get out of that box. That's the... Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, if you put yourself in first century shoes, you can understand why the, the picture is given this way, because all of them are going to be under this this trouble, this tribulation, this difficulty. And you're either going to be faithful to God and go through the suffering and belong to him or you're not, which uh, that's what you had in verse four, that reminder Uh Beheaded for the cause, for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received the mark on their foreheads uh, or their hands. It's very much a widespread. Here are the people who were willing to die for the cause of Christ, did not worship the beast or its image, and did not give in to idolatry so that they had the mark to be able to buy and sell. So I think it's encompassing all the Christians regardless of their method of death because they stayed faithful. I think that's a good question. All right. Uh, anything else with that part before I bring in verse 6 as our final part of the recap? Yeah. I still have my original question. Okay, what was it? Uh, if the thousand years starts when Christ ascended, yes. and the, dra- the, the dragon Satan is bound at that time, you can't use the nations anymore. Right. Well, and I think that's the picture that chapter 20 is, 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 be, is giving here is God is allowing the dragon to use this Roman Empire as a world power to persecute the people of God. And remember, we saw at the end of chapter 17 and 18 what happens to the beast. It's judged and destroyed. So we're, we're watching Christ judge that that's chapter 19 he comes in riding on the white horse and he's got the blood splattered and he's king of kings and lord of lords and he's given victory and all the people of god are saying salvation belongs to the lamb and yea god for for judging it so the enthronement of christ is him then judging nations and peoples he's judging the beast he's now now satan's no longer allowed to use the Roman Empire or any other world power during the time of that imprisonment. So don't look at it as as soon as Christ rose from the dead, that's when Satan no longer had authority. It's now Christ has authority over and he's now judging Satan and putting him in the abyss. Does that help? Yes. Okay. All right. Any other questions? This is your chance. Revelation 20 is one of the big tough sections. I mean, this is where lots of confusion is. All right, verse 6. The second death has no power over them. All right, what's the second death and how do you know? It's interesting that there's often a lot of arguments about first and second death and first and second resurrections. Verse 6. 
Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power. Kathy? Okay, yeah, and, that, and that's right. Second death can't harm. So let's, let's look at it this way. Uh, in this section, did these Christians experience the first death? Yeah, they're dead, right? That, they've been beheaded, they've been persecuted, they've been killed. That's, that's been the repetition. So if you've already died physically, what death could possibly be left? Spiritual death, which means what? Okay, so probably one of the helpful ways to maybe think about death is, is the physical death is the separation of your spirit from your body, right? You have this eternal spirit, soul, and you have a body. The body dies, everything we know in scriptures, spirit lives on, you continue, you're not tied to that. So a separation, that's your first separation you're going to experience, you being separated from your physical body. There's another separation that comes along in second death, which would be you being separated from God. So that would be a spiritual death. So that would make sense of what verse six is getting at is they've gone through the first death, but the second death will have no harm over them. They will not experience that. They will not have a separation from God because they've been faithful to God. They did not worship the beast or its image or have the mark on their hand or on their forehead. They were beheaded for the cause of Christ. They did give their life and lay it down. They were faithful to death. So it would make sense for this picture to, to be this way is to indicate to these Christians, though you may be killed by the beast, the Roman Empire, you may suffer persecution. You may have all these terrible things happen to you on earth. That does not move the needle and mean you're not in favor with God. That's a whole different calculation. And, you know, if you grew up in the pews, you're kind of probably go, well, no, duh, we know, we know that, right? But that's not that obvious back then. That's, this, is, this is teaching of explaining of, you know, even though you may be killed, that doesn't mean you're severed from God. You're, you're still fine with God. So I think that's the, that's the idea here. And don't notice the reasoning in verse 6. They're priests of God and of, of Christ. They're faithful. They're the people of God. That's, they're, they're safe. So that's why they're not going to experience the second death. Okay? All right, Dane. So is the second death here, 26, not the same as the second death, 21-8? Well, I'm not in 21-8. Well, it says it calls it the second death. Yes. There is a challenge that comes in with Well, I think 21.8 helps prove the point because notice in 21.8, who are the people that are experiencing the second death? Yeah. Right. Uh, all the unfaithful, right? They're, they're the sexually immoral and cowards and liars and 
So it fits the idea of, of they're going to be ultimately separated from God. And you have this final judgment sequence here in 20 and 21. Does that work? Okay. Julie? Oh, so I see what you're doing. You're making a, a distinction there and saying, so then I saw in thrones of seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the, and you're, and you're looking at them saying two different groups of people. It says they don't come to life. They don't come to life until the thousand years end. Correct. And that's the first resurrection. Right. Which I thought our first resurrection was when we were raised to walk in newness of life. So now I'm confused. I see what you do. Okay. So I look at, and that goes back to the first two points on the screen. I think the verse 5, that the rest of the dead has to refer to the unfaithful. Uh, if I make them the faithful, then this gets very confusing and convoluted and then who are these and what's going on but I think it makes simpler sense to have the faithful they are alive alive with with Christ therefore here's your resurrection of sorts that they are with him but the rest they're they're not they're not alive with God they're depicted as dead. Now, I, I would not come to this verse and make this some kind of discussion about now what happens to the unfaithful after they die and where they are and all that's going on. I don't think that's the intent. I think the intent is more to say when the faithful die, they're reigning with Christ. It's not really referring to what happens to the unfaithful except to say they're not with them. <laughs> they're not They're not in, in, enjoying that. Do you have a point there, question? Because, and my answer to that would be because we're going to have in verses 11 through 15 them standing before the throne of God and getting judged. <clears throat> they, they have not experienced a final judgment yet. They need to stand before the throne. So that would be my, my, my idea with that. And again, the, the difficulty would be, and I'm not trying to shoot down the idea, but just trying to explain. So the non-martyrs, why are they experiencing a different outcome at their death versus martyrs? To me, that's challenging because it's not your fault you didn't get killed for the cause of Christ in 2023, right? You were faithful. So it's hard to like run a line right there and say, you get extra special status if you're beheaded. I, I don't think that's the idea here. It's going to be better for you. I, I think a lot of that ideology comes from 
And I want to put a lens back on this that I think is important. I don't think Revelation 20's intent is to explain to us, here's what happens when you die. That's not the scope of this book. The question is, if you're dying for the cause of Christ, what's going to happen? Because you've been depicted as you are going to die. You are going to suffer. You are not going to be allowed to buy and sell in the marketplace. You're going to go through extreme persecution, a great tribulation. Well, what happens to us if we refuse the mark of the beast and do not worship the image and we are killed for the cause of Christ? And the answer is, you're fine. You're reigning with him. You're around the throne. You're victorious. You're not going to experience a second death. You're going to be just fine. Not true of everyone else. Not true of the unfaithful, but for you who are faithful, you'll be with God. I think that's what the lens of those six verses are doing, rather than trying to answer our deepest, darkest wants and wishes about what happens exactly when we die and where we go. That's not what that's. You're trying to make this do something that it's not supposed to do. Dathan? I'm, I'm not sure this helps, but what I saw were two deaths and two resurrections. Yep. And so. One resurrection is to life. The other re- resurrection is to judgment. Yes. And, and you know, that kind of simplified yeah. form. Yeah, I think that is the idea. Is that? I thought it really complicated as, yeah. as um, Jews. Not yeah, the unfaithful will still have to come back to life so that they can be judged. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, sometimes, and that's a problem. Maybe that's worth talking about just for a minute. Is sometimes there is a point of view that the Christians will come to life and live and the unfaithful are, are just dead and gone and vaporized. It's a view of a called annihilation. I don't think the scriptures uphold that. And I think this kind of confirms that. No, they're going to live and be judged and have eternal punishment. And Matthew 25, I think, confirms that pretty well. That however long uh, paradise and comfort and eternal life are is how long eternal punishment is because you have a distinguishing of the division of the sheep and goats and some are to eternal life and some are to eternal punishment well however long one is is how long the other one is and i think it's the same idea here is that everyone's going to come to life and stand before the throne of god i don't know that we're going to get there today but that's what verses 11 through 15 are saying is the dead the dead and hades and everything's going to basically give itself up and everybody's going to be be around the throne of throne of God. Yeah, I think when we're reading Revelation twenty, it's always good to kind of balance it off with chapter chapter nineteen mm-hmm. because the, the deal with and I'm always like I like to start with the big picture and kind of start working down. And sometimes the details are not always going to be as succinct. And it's not necessarily always because of all the primitivist kind of teaching. It's just because it, it is a book that's difficult mm-hmm. you know, to just, on the first read, it's like, whoa. Well, yeah. When you see a thousand, of course you want to take a literal. Right. So there is a lot of like balancing out that sometimes you have to start back in the book to recognize, wait a minute, this is a vision. Yeah. So try and stay in context there and work big picture to little details. Yes. Kind of thing, as far as you can. And in Revelation 19.21, the rest there are the people that are unfaithful that will be being judged, just like you said that. Yep. So when I start to carry that rest, I bring it all the way through 20, yep. recognizing that in 19, this is where God is showing, okay, listen, the saints were crying out to me, listen, when are you going to start, you know, avenging us? Yep. 
Alright, we started to see that finality coming into place. 19, I'm going to destroy the things Satan has been using to persecute the people. 20, I'm going to destroy him. He never had power. His time has come. I'm going to destroy him. 21, which I know you haven't got there yet. Not there yet. But this is It'll be about four months. <laughs> and that's okay too. You know what I mean? You'll be digesting it. But 21 is just like, now here is where eternity. This is what we've all been waiting for. That's all right. of us, all faithful. Yes. This is what it is. So the book is kind of ramping us up. But God is showing, I have always been in control. I've never lost power. He has an ability to, 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 like we see in different books, the prince of this world, these kind of things, his time has come. Yeah. It will end. The thousand years for too many of us, I think, is kind of like you said, we've seen this in movies and stuff, like <laughs> we're trying to map it out. Like, right. Nope. Yeah. God alone knows those time periods. Yeah. And he's letting us know it. It's, like, Listen, it's coming. Yeah. So if we keep... 19, I don't think that's a good reminder to not break this chapter apart from everything that we've read and what the purpose of this, this book has, has been about. April. And that kind of goes back to what what Julie was talking about. And that's the way I think verse four should be looked at is here is John. He sees thrones and people seated on these thrones who have authority. And the question is, well, who are these people? Who are the people who are sitting on thrones and have authority? Well, I think the very next sentence is explaining who they are. They're the faithful. They've given their lives for the cause of Christ and they are coming to life and they're reigning for the thousand years with them and they will not experience a second death. I think that's what the also is, is doing, is trying to just move the idea forward. And, and you've seen that happen a lot in the book, by the way. I mean, Revelation 7 is, again, a good picture, good taste of that, where in one moment you're looking and you go, it's 12,000 from each tribe that are sealed. And then the very next breath is, well, where are they? Well, actually, they're around the throne of God. And now they're considered a great multitude. And they're like, well, wait a minute, I thought, well... It's trying to explain who these people are with continuous uh, pictures. And the same thing I think is happening here is I see people on thrones. Well, who are they? Well, they're the faithful. They're not the unfaithful. They're alive and reigning with Christ. So they're doing just fine, though they've been beheaded and persecuted and killed. Uh, And it's an encouragement to overcome through death because you see what the outcome is going to be. Uh, This is our great Christian hope and confidence is it doesn't matter what happens to us physically. We know what the outcome looks like. We reign with him. And so bring on persecution. I don't care what you do to me. It's going to be just fine because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this is trying to give a visual of that, of that, that idea is that you're not dead and oh no. It's you're dead and oh yay. You're going to be, going to be great. Okay. Uh, Dane? So they need to just sum this up really well. Maybe if we kind of explain it, Michael just tell me about the verse in Thessalonians, the dead in Christ shall rise. Yep. If we think of when you die in Christ, you reign. Yes. You actually are reigning with him because yeah. you, you've lived faithfully and therefore Christ is telling you, yeah. yeah, the period while you're waiting for this next death where I now take you into eternity, you're reigning. 
That's right. And, and these are things that are hard for us because what do we have about five sentences in all of the Bible about what this all looks like? I mean, there's, there's barely any information about this. But you have pictures of though the body dies, you're still alive. But you also have a picture of God has to raise that physical body back up, change it. And you're going to go on for all eternity in this new change spiritual body that Paul says. It's kind of like if you plant a seed in the ground and the plant comes out, it's completely different. All right. So you can be alive and the body did, but the body still has to come back to life. And be changed. So again, this is not, this text here in Revelation 20 is not a deep theological treatise on how it all plays out when you die. We, we've got other places that talk about some of those things. Uh, but the idea of resurrection should not phase us because everybody's body has got to come back to life <laughs> and then be judged and changed. Okay. All right. All right. Well, there's no way now. <laughs> we don't have a prayer to cover 7 through 10 in 10 minutes. Oh, my. All right. Well, how about one verse of it, I guess? We'll just, we'll, we'll start. <laughs> how is it already 10.05, Dennis? <laughs> Briefly, wouldn't uh, Christ tell the thief on the cross, he'll be with me in paradise, can't go into explaining that as far as he'll be alive? It's another picture, right? Yeah, it's another picture of there is life. Same idea. And obviously, Christ is alive, though his body is dead. And then the body's reanimated, comes back to life, and his soul can't be kept in Hades. And the, yeah. Yeah, we get these, you know, like I said, like five sentences in all the scriptures about all of this. And you're kind of like, whoa, okay. Trying to get a, a feel of what this exactly, what it exactly looks like. But uh, I think the idea here of talking about sharing in, in, in the resurrection is, is helpful in that picture of the body has got to still come back to life and, and reign with Christ forever. All right, this is the one that you all were talking about. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. This is where everybody's been running to when we were two weeks ago at this time. Okay, well, what, what's going on here? So Satan will be released at the end of the thousand years. Okay. And then you read that and you go, Interesting. I don't know that there's a whole lot we can do with that because that is a very concise, not detailed explanation that at the very end of it all, there's a one more thing, which in some ways makes sense because again, 1 Corinthians 15 said, Christ reigns on the throne until all the enemies are put under his feet. We're going to deal with this one last last person yet. You'll notice that it says at the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to come out to deceive the nations. All right. So how did we define deceiving the nations? That's where we started all this. All right. So Satan was using a world power to cause the world to worship it and to be able to harm the people of God. Okay, so we'll hold that piece in our minds is that 
What Satan has been limited and prevented from doing during the reign of Christ is now going to be allowed, it appears, one, one more time. Now, one of the things that's particularly interesting about the way this is worded is in verse 8, where it says, He'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Okay, Gog and Magog, everybody really gets crazy about. The good news for you is you were here this year on Sunday nights with my long detailed thing about Gog and Magog that we did in Ezekiel. It explained all of that. So this is no problem for you and you've got the answer for me. <laughs> and it's one of the reasons I wanted to go through that is because Gog and Magog can be a, be a little bit tricky. But remember that that is a representation of nations that stand against God and his people. And we, we looked at that in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And if you might remember, I made the, the observation there in 38.17, and it said a couple of times in that text, God, I can't use God because Gog and Gog are, sound too similar. The Lord uses a world nation to come up against his people so that he can rightly execute judgment against that nation. That's what Gog and Magog represented. And we, we saw that in those two chapters when we studied that in Ezekiel. And if you missed that, I'd really encourage you to go back onto the website and go listen to that lesson because it really clarifies a lot about what this is talking about. And you will notice that the text itself actually tells you who Gog and Magog are. What does it say right before that? Who are Gog and Magog according to verse 8? The yeah, the deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. And there's your definition right there. It has always been the nations that stand against God and his people. Uh, and so Gog and Magog represent that. And so you, you see that picture be, being given here is that God, the Lord, I, mean, I can't say Gog and a Gog-Magog thing. The Lord is going to use this to be able to execute final judgments on the nations because they stood against him and, and against his people. And so uh, that is what I think you have been depicted here. So when the thousand years are ended and we've come to the end of it all, it is time ultimately for uh, a, a fi final judgment. You'll notice what verse 9 describes. This four corners of the earth deceiving the nations, march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints, the beloved city uh, of, of God. So it, it looks pretty bad, doesn't it? It sounds like in verses 7, 8, and 9, oh no, when the thousand years are over, Satan is going to be released. He's going to be allowed to do the exact same thing that he did before of generating a world power to stand against the Lord and his people. He's going to begin to persecute them and kill them. And they're going to surround the people of God. And, and you see that in verse 9. But notice what's, what else it says in verse 9. What happens next? <laughs> this is just like Armageddon. Back in Armageddon in chapter 16, remember it looked like they're, all, they're surrounding the people of God and they're all gathering for battle. But remember, there was absolutely no battle there. God just went, <laughs> gone. Gather them all in this decisive place and then just wipe them out. Notice there's a similarity here. They're all gathering around the people of God. 
And as soon as they gather and encircle the city, it says they're consumed. (laughs) So you have this picture of them trying one more time, uh, but ultimately failing, doesn't it? Yeah, it's that same kind of imagery, right? Is this put them all in one place so they can be ultimately decisively judged? Yeah, that would explain how Satan's being turned loose for a little bit, so he'll do all that, and then he can bring final judgment, verse 20, against the devil, who's now thrown in the lake of fire, in verse, verse 10, I mean, uh, chapter 20, verse 10. Verse 10, they're thrown in the lake of fire. The nations then are, all the nations of the earth are ultimately judged, and rightfully so, because they failed to follow God and listen to him, but instead stood against the Lord and his, his people. Now, here's the thing about verses 7 through 10. Does it tell you how long any of that's going to take? Here's opinion, Brent, at this point. I have the tendency to think that this is not saying that just like what happened in chapter 13, it's all going to happen all over again. And there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of years where there's going to be this world power again is going to stand against the people of God and cause persecution and cause their death. And then God's going to finally judge them. It just doesn't quite sound like that. To me, it kind of sounds like at the very end, there's going to be one more attempt by Satan, one more ramp up. And as soon as he attempts to do that, God's going to go, that's it. Fire comes down and consumes them all. To me, that makes sense and connects well with 1 Corinthians 15. But again, I would, I would note that it is interesting that verses 7 through 10 don't say exactly how long this is all, all going to be. Uh, and again, I would underscore the purpose here is so that God can rightfully bring judgment against the nations who have stood against God. So again, it's one more opportunity for the world to be able to come to God and obey him. They're going to ultimately refuse to do so, which is the nature of all nations and peoples, which is then going to vindicate God to bring final judgment upon the nations for not doing doing what is right. You have one minute for questions. <laughs> Told you I did not have enough time for this section. We'll come back here next week. Uh, but I thought maybe it'd be useful to go over it real quick so you can think about it for a week about what, what that's saying. But uh, I, I think that's the intent of what's, what's happening here uh, is a picture of attempting one more time to stand against the Lord and his people. And I don't know that there's going to be necessarily that you should look out into the world and go, OK, well, I see this one big trouble thing out here. So that must be ultimately pointing to it. Uh, I think it's just indicating that Satan is never done trying to destroy us and he will try one more time and he will fail yet again one more time uh, at the the end of it all and he will be judged along with all who stood against uh, the Lord and his people. All right. Uh, so go ahead and work on that one and we'll come back to 7 through 10 and see if you have any questions about that. I would encourage you to go look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 about Gog and Magog, but Revelation does give you a picture. It's the nations of the earth 
So just imagine it. The nations of the earth are yet again standing against the Lord and his people, and God is going to judge them for that. Uh, and ultimately, they will be dealt with with that. And if we can get through that section, uh, I am ready for verses uh, 11 through 15 that we can uh, look at this great right throne scene uh, and move through that as well. 15-minute break. We'll reconvene at 1030 for uh, our next hour of worship. All right. Thank you, everybody.